trying to think if I've had a professor before. I've had lecturers, I've had doctors, <laughs> but never someone with tenure. How far through the tenure are you? Um, I'm so far through the tenure that I've retired. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so you're emerita. Um, no, I'm not at the moment. I'm, I'm visiting. Where am I speaking? To, where are you speaking from? Um, I, I live near Tullaughborough in Leicestershire. Near to Tullaughborough, it's a very nice area called Charnwood, so it's very kind of rural. Ah, yes. I'm not sure I understand. Well, that's my watch. Let me turn that off. Oh, I might leave that in, actually, just to show that you're oh. with it and hip and technical. <laughs> or am I? Or am I? Professor Jean Williamsy, a visiting professor, uh, whose new book, A History of Women's Football, is, well, it's an update. From what I've got here, it's an update of an academic textbook called A Game for Rough Girls, question mark, uh, which you wrote in 2003. Yeah, I think that's really, really fair, actually, because we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of that book being published. So I completed my PhD in 2002. And um, the book was published in 2003 as a game for rough girls. And I have thought about reissuing that book and updating it. But actually, what I wanted to do with a non-academic publication was to appeal to a broader audience. And so I, I didn't go back and revisit the material. In fact, quite a lot of the oral history interviews that I did in a game for rough girls, I just left as they are, because uh, I think in the end I decided that that work stands alone. And I've been taken in a number of new directions with my interests and things that have popped up. And that's really what the new book reflects, is a lot of new research. Again, like a lot of other people, it, it was basically a lockdown project and, and focused my attention. I, I know how you feel. The Football Library emerged as a lockdown project and I've now done over 200 of these. The, my only sadness is that I've hardly spoken to any people who share your chromosomes. It's It's been, as you would expect, predominantly male. But I did speak to yeah. Carrie Dunn, who is about to complete her trilogy with, is it called From Ladies to Lionesses? Were you spoken to for that? Yes, yeah, I've spoken to Carrie for that. I don't know what the title of her project is is it when you say trilogy do you mean off the back of her other work around the yeah Yeah. okay so maybe that's what that project is yeah certainly i've um contributed um uh interviews to that and and perceptions around the language around women's football particularly you know maybe hopefully in the future carrie and i will write a book together because i think we've got you know complementary um skill sets and, and a, a big mutual interest clearly in in, in those topics yeah. do you have a dog as well when i spoke to carrie she just got in from walking dog no i'm afraid i don't have a dog <laughs> i i was until uh, two years ago a, a cat person rather than a dog person but my my little writing friend left us i'm afraid mm. so um that's the um that's the acknowledgement and the dedication of of this new book is that he was he was rather irritated by my writing in in the way that I think cats are and and dogs are not dogs will take themselves off and um go and have a snooze but if a cat wants your attention and you think you're writing your magnum opus it will come and sit on the keyboard and um demand to have its own attention so um (laughs) 
I it's do... written into the story of that. Oh, God, I do have that image. I'm in a flat, so we can't have any pets. But, yes, the writer's companion is all well and yeah. good. But when they sploosh over the keys, um, yeah. maybe it's better to dictate and then just go into and then wait till the cat naps and then type it all up. But that must be so a, a work like this, a history of women's football, which is out on pen and sword, uh, equally mighty. Um, how much of it was well initially transcription, and how much of it was academic jargon? Uh, well, I've been the academic jargon, which is I've written four academic books now on the history of women's football, you know, footnoted, um, uh, referenced uh, with all the academic architecture that you would expect. And they're probably read by about, judging by the um, royalties that I get annually, they're probably read by about 20 people around the world in a year. You know, that's absolutely fine. But that history is now out there. What I what I've done since I I left academia in November um, twenty twenty, and what I've done since then is moved more into public history and heritage work as a consultant. And so the purpose of this book is to get rid of the academic architecture, to make it hopefully readable and fun. I'm fueled in that by the fact that the stories are so fantastic and they deserve a much wider audience than um, an academic audience and, and an audience who don't want to um, have their reading experience limited by that academic architecture because you know some people can find it both irritating and um, intimidating. Yeah, I, I think it's just that Go academics on. tend to write for academics, whereas if you are a popular academic, you're Mary Beards, David Olushoga, David Starkey, Simon Sharma, um, they've got a publisher and an editor to just jog them into thinking of who the reader is. So when you were updating uh, a game for rough girls as a history for women football, did you have an imagined reader in mind? Absolutely. And, and, and absolutely, as the dedication says, it's the women who told me their stories. I have the great good fortune that the women football players will sit down with me and tell me their very personal stories. And um, I wanted a book. In fact, the books, the free books that I've had, I've sent with dedications to players who contributed because... Um, I want them to be able to read their own stories back. But also there is this uh, unique thing within women's football, which is which is unlike men's football, which I've seen with my own eyes at a reunion, and I was trying to capture that sort of page, which is you can get the Manchester Corinthians, who were very active women players in the 50s and 60s, in the same room as... Uh, Harry Bat's 71 Mexico World Cup team and you can get women who have played for England in the 80s and 90s and none of these three sets of players have heard of one another which is kind of unimaginable you know it's if, if you were a men's England football fan, it would be unimaginable that you'd not heard of, um, you know, Sir Bobby Moore and and um, to know of the, the great and the good who have gone before. But women don't know those stories and they think that they're the first. They, 
in many ways they do pioneer each new generation but what I wanted to show is the commonality of the stories and also the fact that women's football is not new it's as old as football um, and that's the big myth really that I wanted to address in this book. Yeah it was uh, it was a suppression and Thank goodness we're in the present because the past was not a nice place for women. And I just would like to point, I might tweet this as well, the listener to the reunion, which was Kirsty Walk talking to five or six of these pioneers. And you got a cameo. You popped up uh, giving a couple of quotations. This is an episode about the pioneers of the women's game or one of them. I can't remember which one it was. The suffragettes of women's football. So who were... Um, according to you, the suffragettes, the suffragists, uh, and you can you can go back as far as the 1910s and 20s and and name some of them. Well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to quibble with that slightly because it goes back further, which is the 1880s. And, and indeed, the other thing to say is, having visited um, National Football Museum uh, in China in Zebo, you know, there's a form of folk football called shuju where women were definitely playing and that game uh, evolved over thousands of years. So perhaps it's best for your listeners to picture Shuju almost as a form of freestyling um, that we would think of now, you know, originally a form of kind of keepy-uppy, but but which was formalised and then played over nets and so on and so forth. And again, the, the game evolved over many years. And indeed, within folk football within the British Isles, you've got married versus British, uh, sorry, married versus um, single women's matches across the British Isles and different forms of folk football before football was codified as a modern sport, largely from 1863 onwards. So I, I, I take issue with it being a kind of even early um 20th century manifestation and, and to say, you know, women's football is as old as football culture. Um, certainly the 1881 games were played to raise money um, from spectators. So they were a form of professional football when professional football was in its infancy, you know, with the establishment of the Football League in 1888. That was really key. And then I would highlight, of course, the gloriously named Nettie Honeyball, um, with the British Ladies Football Club in 1894-5, who was a kind of supreme self-publicist. She advertised the matches, she advertised the practice matches and the development of the club in 1894, well before the first match was played in 1895. And she had Lady Florence Dixie, an aristocrat, who was well known in a number of circles as a non-playing president of that club who insisted that the women play in in rational dress. So they played in, they look to us today like bloomers, but they were definitely a very early form. Uh, Shirts and and shorts, shin pads, boots. It was definitely not to be played in divided skirts, for instance. Mm. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's always made women's football challenging to public perceptions because the silhouette isn't like women's hockey or women's netball. It's a recognisable football strip. And coming back to those British Ladies Football Club games, again, your listeners, whatever part of the British Isles they are from or indeed further afield, 
if if you look all over the UK, British Ladies Football Club played something like 160 matches in in various uh, forms or another. There were breakaway teams and so on. But most of the British Isles were covered by those matches. You know, Ireland, Wales, Scotland. Yeah, they, they literally played all over. Because that was where the football was. They, they hadn't really spread out. So codified football hadn't really spread beyond the British Isles in the 19th century. And it, it obviously coincided with the late Victorian era of both um, commun- com- not communitarianism, I think is the academic word. I've got, to, I've got to make my words longer if I'm talking to a professor. And um, the weekend, the fact that you had to do something on Saturday afternoon because there was little inner entertainment to do. So was it at that stage, it was a perfect marriage uh, of circumstance at the end of the 19th century that made it popular? Yeah, I mean, I think non-radical um cause for suffrage had made women's profile higher and I think relative uh, standards of living were a little bit higher in that last decade of the 19th century but also as you say it was a form of collective action it was a gap in the market football league formed in 1888 by um, the middle of the uh, end of the 19th century uh, the 1890s you know it, it was firmly established And if football began to become what has been called the people's game, then it makes it natural that women through collective action would begin to form their own clubs. Women's Hockey Association was formed in 1894. Um, So sport was very much part of what women did in terms of socialising with one another and with men. Obviously, croquet and tennis had set the fashion for that much earlier in the 19th century, and Wimbledon was well advanced, and it made the women tennis players as as much sort of topical heroes of the time as Emma Raducanu would be now. They, they were young, they were vigorous, they were physically assertive, and so... With, you'd already got women's hockey, women's cricket, women's rowing, cycling, and so why not women's football? And there was money to be made. And um, the British Ladies Football Club showed that women's teams could raise money. And increasingly what happened into 1902 uh, is that they played against men's teams and they were the biggest uh, gate receipts of all, um, which resulted in the first prohibition by the FA in 1902, that women's teams must not play against men's teams. I was talking to Jamie, thank you for that, I was talking to Jamie Fahey, who's written a book on futsal, which is indoor or short form football. And Mm -hmm. I posited that if you put Lucy Bronze in a -a five-a-side team, so a mixed five-a-side team, that would hold so much interest, both live and televised. Is there any argument against doing that when the female players are professional athletes now? Well, the the whole thing around mixed soccer is is hugely, you know, it tends to generate more heat than light. But if you look at the development of that, it's very much within um, an English context that we think it's, it's difficult. If you look at the United States, which doesn't have the same kind of history. Um, there's much more pickup soccer in the US. 
And so it's, you know, who's a useful body, not what gender is that body. Um, And you have much more of a tradition of mixed soccer into adult leagues and, and recreational football and all of that kind of thing. It doesn't come with the same sort of baggage that it tends to come within the UK. So, um, yeah, there's no reason for that. It's it's a construction, uh, and it's mainly been constructed by the football authorities as, if you like, gendered labour markets. Um, uh, and the example that, that I... Um, often give is that those those labour markets are always gendered so you know you will hear the same kind of narratives within horse racing say that um, a lot of owners and racers and uh, trainers will say that they prefer a male jockey because although women are can be the same weight they perceive that pound for pound men can pack this uh, more muscle for the same weight and of course it's it's a nonsense because the idea that women couldn't train themselves up to have as much muscle uh, for the same weight is yeah my opinion of my opinion of horse racing matches that of formula one the history of women's football is out now so it covers the whole world so in your lifetime you have seen the women's game become professionalized Uh, it was taken over by the men's fa in england and uh, and even before that, UEFA had it. Uh, how much further is there to go for parity? Well, it depends what you think parity looks like, doesn't it? Um, which is to say, and, and again, I, I would go back and say, I haven't seen the game professionalised in my lifetime. Women's football started off as a professional sport um, and that was stopped um, quite dramatically by by the ban um but just to in in terms of parity what does parity look like so the narratives around men's football is that it's often too much they are too rich they earn too much money the clubs export their fans too much it's too excess blah de blah that is largely based on perceptions of the big five clubs uh, the big five leagues in europe and actually men's professional football has as many variances as there are employment opportunities so you might be playing sunday league football as a man and you might be paid an extra 50 quid on top of your um you know, main wage, you might be a plasterer or a plumber or whatever in the week, or, you know, you might be in the lower leagues of male professional football, and there are forms of semi-professionalisation as well as professionalisation. What I would argue is that the compared with the football league that has been around since 1888, which gave rise, obviously, to the Premiership more recently in the last 30-odd years, is that the... You know, the Women's uh, Soccer Association is is, um, the Women's um, Professional League has been around for just over 10 years. And so, you know, who knows? Try and project that forward in 100 years' time and, and who knows what will have happened with male professional soccer. Will people have become alienated by its values and will people be um, still fans of women's football in the same way. It's very difficult to know. Um, I deal with historical evidence rather than trying to crystal ball, really. Yes, and as you should, as an historian. 
because projections ahead of counterfactuals or you don't have the facts but i suppose parity of esteem is what i meant we're talking in the week that coventry united who are a championship club so they play in the second tier of the women's game uh, yeah. and they're, they're only watford are doing worse in that division they were uh, one second to midnight and they could have been liquidated but i believe it's oldham's owner or wickham's owner who's it's another team's owner has stepped in and rescued the club yeah. This, this... Yeah, well, it's still on, it's still ongoing, isn't yeah. it? As I understand it, they're trying to rescue the club and they're trying to work with the receivers. We we know Barclays are pumping money into the women's Premier Division because there's an audience and there's eyeballs and there's money. But Watford had to. Watford were a third tier club. They're now a second tier club. Watford's turnover in the as a football club is 150 million pounds. Surely they can oh. invest more than what they're investing. Surely Liverpool. The European Cup winners two years ago can invest more money than this kind of money that got Liverpool ladies relegated the other season. Yes, quite. I, I entirely agree with you. The problem with that is that the FA, having formed the Women's Super League, which they did at the behest of Hope Powell then, who was the national coach in England, the reason that that league was formed was to get the women's national team squad, regular playing opportunities against the best opposition that they could. The problem with it 10 years down the line is that the Football Association has always thought of the Women's Super League as um, a revenue liability rather than as an as a financial asset. And as such, they're continually trying to offload it to the Premier League. Um, you may have seen some of the... Um, conversations that they've had around trying to get the Premier League to take it on and the problem that you have then as you as you rightly illustrated in your point or question is that women's football therefore becomes a subsidiary of the main football clubs it's it's almost like the main football clubs view men's football as the full sugar rush of you know go and have your pie and go and have your pint and have a good time with your mates. That's the full sugar rush product. And then, of course, occasionally we need to eat our greens. And what are we going to do if we want to eat our greens and look worthy and all the rest of it? Well, we have a women's team and we put them as part of football in the community. That means that we can draw down various grants that we couldn't um, attract uh, directly just through men's football and it means that as part of the corporate social responsibility of that club we look like we're progressive and forward thinking and women's football will always be a second class product if that's where we're going to place it at, at the elite pinnacle of the game and it's not like that necessarily in Europe um, if you look at certain other models um, Angel City in the US and what's being done in Scandinavia, there are women-only clubs that are being supported and they bring in different um, audiences, they bring in different sponsors and they bring in different fans. And that message is not, just not getting through to the FA. So, um, consequently... I think it's a prop I think the women's super league is a problematic product and will continue to be until it, it's viewed as 
a potential area where new sponsors can be brought into football who are alienated by the values of elite men's football. And I would go back to the point about Barclays. Why is Barclays um, moving into women's football historically? So if you think about what they did in the 1950s, they used to sponsor things like um, the Ascents of Everest and those kind of very nationalistic, very kind of patriotic, but nevertheless innovative aspects of sporting life. Barclays moving into women's football after the financial crash of 2008, I would suggest is part of trying to recoup the image of the banking oh, sector. Brand which shown to be. Yeah, it's, it's sports washing, yeah. quite clearly. And it's sports washing um, on an economy wash. So Good. you can move into women's football quite cheaply. Barclays are quite open about that, that it doesn't cost that much money. You can look very progressive... Um, at a very economical cost. And, um, you know, I would suggest that that's as much about rehabilitating Barclays' image as it, uh, as it is about promoting women's football. Mm. And yet uh, it means that the standard of the women's game is raised because it will attract foreign talent. Uh, just as on the women's game generally, the fact that the last World Cup didn't have the best women's player in the world almost yeah. devalued the tournament. You've obviously been following Aga Hegerberg and her career. This is, a, this is a modern athlete in that she is unafraid and also anything she do, does filters down. Megan Rapinoe, the same thing, but with a different skew. Right. I would argue that it wasn't Ada Hegerberg who devalued the tournament. I would argue that it's FIFA and the French Football well, Federation. Correct. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. To throw that back to you, why, if I'm the best woman player in the world and you're hosting a World Cup in a country that can't be bothered to put the final in the national stadium but park it away down in Lyon um, because we assume that Parisians can't be bothered with women's football and um, we know that Lyon obviously has a, a, a real hotbed of women's soccer if you have already devalued the stage on which I would play, why would I bother to turn up? I'll take that as a rhetorical question, and I'll, I'll just leave that hanging in there.